Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 164 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Gary Witta. He wrote the screenplay for the post-apocalyptic thriller The Book of Eli, starring Denzel Washington and Gary Oldman and also worked on the script for After Earth, a sci-fi adventure starring Will Smith and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Gary has also written for video games and comics, and he also worked on the upcoming feature film Star Wars Rogue One, which unfortunately he is strictly forbidden from discussing. He recently used the Inkshares crowdfunding platform to publish his first novel, Abomination. And now, here's our interview with Gary Whitta. Alright, so we're here with Gary Whitta. Welcome to the show. Hello! Okay, and so you started your career as a game reviewer. So just tell us a bit about how you got involved with that. Yeah, I started, uh, geez, I mean, I, I started like way back in the, in the 8-bit days of, uh, of computer gaming. I was, a, uh, I was reading uh, the Commodore 64 games magazines and playing, you know, kind of Sinclair Spectrum and C64 games. I grew up in the UK, so I was much more a child of kind of the, the Commodore and the, and the Sinclair computer game world than I was really Nintendo and Sega. But I grew up loving those 8-bit games and transitioned into the 16-bit era. Uh, right as I was kind of leaving school and desperately wanted to kind of do something like this for a living. I know that I love video games. Um, I really wanted to write and, uh, you know, it was kind of a combination of writing being the only thing that I had ever really shown any kind of aptitude towards in school. And also at the same time as a teenager, the only thing I was really kind of that interested in was video games. And I was tremendously inspired by the game magazines that I, uh, I would read voraciously when I was growing up. That's what I really wanted to do. And I would type out these little mock reviews. It's much easier these days, of course, you know, you can do your own reviews on, on your own website or create a blog or something like that. But, um, it wasn't necessarily quite as easy to break into the print magazine world back in the, the late 1980s when I started, but I would write these kind of dummy reviews and kind of mail them out to my favorite game magazines. And someone eventually took me on and, you know, gave me a, a you know, a box of games to go home and review. And that's kind of really how it all started for me. Was that PC Gamer? No, that was Commodore User. So this was like 1988, and it was roughly around the time, some of your older listeners will probably remember this, it was right around the time that the 8-bit generation was giving away to 16-bit. So the Commodore 64 was kind of going away, and the Amiga was the new thing. You know, we were transitioning from 8 to 16-bit. And I, as a kid, as like a 15-year-old kid, had saved up like all my paper route money and and, and all my allowance to uh, buy an Amiga 500. It was like the thing that I wanted. And I bought an Amiga and I got it like, I think the first week that it was available in the UK. And then when I went to Commodore user to interview uh, for this job, they weren't necessarily that, you know, interested in hiring me. But when they found out that I had an Amiga and they, I think they didn't have at that time have any freelancers who actually had one at home. And they had this big stack of Amiga games they needed freelancers to review. So it was really just simply the fact that I had an Amiga uh, they kind of got me in the door with, uh, like I said, they sent me home with a box of Amiga games to look at because they just didn't have enough freelancers with the hardware at home. So that was the that was kind of how I got into the business. Hmm. Well, so that's a lucky break. I guess that's going to come back too when we talk about your screenwriting career. Um, but, yes, uh, yeah, you will. You will find that most of the things I've achieved have been pure luck. <laughs> but so I'm mean, because I used to read PC Gamer though, so I'm curious to hear about that. How did you get? How did you end up at PC Gamer? Yeah, that came a few years later. So I started in ADA and I kind of jobbed around on various uh, 16-bit game magazines. Uh, I worked on a magazine called The One, which was kind of a tri-format. It covered uh, the Amiga, the Atari ST, and the PC, which back then was really just barely 
finding its feet as a as a as a as a games machine. I mean, I I remember playing games in like CGA, you know, EGA, even prior to the kind of VGA era. You know, when when games had kind of sixteen colors. I remember playing, uh, you know, a lot of the very very early primitive PC games. But there was kind of a, the beginnings of a market there. And around 1993, I guess the PC games market had gotten to the point where it was considered viable for them to have their own magazines. Uh, and PC Gamer was was launched, and I was hired to go work on that. As I think I was originally taken on as deputy editor, but then the editor left um, quite quickly after the magazine was launched, and I became uh, the editor in chief editor in chief of PC Gamer in the UK. That was in '93, and then um, around '96, I came out to the US to San Francisco to oversee kind of the launch of the American edition of of that magazine of PC Gamer. And it was originally just meant to be kind of my my year in America. I hadn't originally planned to stay longer than that, but I kind of fell in love with San Francisco, with the Bay Area. And also secretly at the back of my mind, it was always, I'd never quite put away the ambition that I might one day write movies for a living. And I figured getting to San Francisco kind of got me, you know, nine tenths of the way towards Hollywood where I would need to be if I ever wanted to take that seriously. Right, right. So yeah, so I said I used to read PC Gamer magazine. I was a really hardcore PC gamer back in the day. And one thing that strikes me now is that it seems like, you know, you go on Xbox Live or something, and it's just like this nonstop stream of obscenity from uh, teenagers. And I'm wondering, like, when you were writing for PC Gamer, was gaming culture different? Were people writing you angry letters all the time like that? Or do you think gaming culture has changed since the 90s? I was funny. I was just talking to someone about this the other day about how, like, you know, I'm going to sound like kind of a, a, a kind of a, a grumpy old man here, kind of like Abraham Simpson. But I, I actually kind of miss the days when you know the, what you would hear from the community was basically just on the letters pages of the magazine, and that was a curated space where you know all the crazy letters, you know, just kind of <laughs> kind of got tossed away, and you would only print you know the edifying ones. Now, of course, it's much more like the wild west you know this massive you know democratization of opinion that we've seen the internet give rise to is i think you know it's tremendous in many ways but there is also you know kind of a dark side to it and that's why uh you know we we unfortunately now live in this culture where you know a lot of people just don't go anywhere near the comments section and a lot of the major gaming outlets um have had to you know either put huge resources into moderating their you know their comments and their reader feedback sections or just shut them down altogether because they've just gotten out of control hmm. but you you got plenty of crazy letters though back in the day it's not like they it's not like that's a new phenomenon yeah that's i mean i don't think you know the the internet has created the crazies the crazies have always been there they just now have a much more powerful outlet to make themselves heard yeah well, it's, it's interesting, actually, if you um, type your name into YouTube, this video comes up where it's you debating some uh, colonel about video oh, game Dave violence. Was, yeah. Uh, I was just curious what, to hear more about that experience from your point of view. What was it like doing that? You know, I try, first of all, I try not to type my name into YouTube <laughs> if possible. Um, but if someone does that, yes, that video does does come up. I'm kind of amazed it's still there. It's... Um, it, it's kind of become a little bit infamous, I guess, in that um, I don't know how many people remember this guy, but Dave Grossman was one of these characters, kind of like Jack Thompson, you know, one of these anti-video game, you know, campaigners who for a while there was trying to convince people that playing video games turned harmless children into violent expert killers. And that a lot of the mass shootings that we you know, saw and continue to see uh, tragically in America, um, how, you know, but basically were the fault of video games. And I've, as, along with many other people, have always thought that the argument is preposterous. And I was, 
um, asked to go on Fox News many years ago and debate this guy. And like I said, if you type my name into YouTube, you can see it for yourself. Um, I, I try not to look at that video if only because of the terrible, terrible um, vest thing that I was wearing back then. It's just embarrassing to me now. Um, but uh, I was quite proud of my, you know, I, I think put up a decent argument against Dave. I think that these people, uh, you know, whenever, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, whenever, you know, what you, we see one of these mass shootings and one of these terrible tragedies, people always blame the culture. They always blame the media. Um, they blame everything um, except, it seems, the uh, the crazy degree to which guns are readily available to anyone in this country. And I think that's a, a, a bit sad. Was that the only debate like that you did, or did you do any other things like that? I mean, I've certainly been on plenty of panels and forums and things like that where I've been asked to give my opinion. I think that might be the only time that I've ever been on uh, Fox News. <laughs> uh, and, and, this, and this was several years ago, I think, before Fox really had created the reputation that it has today for being, you know, this very kind of partisan, uh, agenda-driven uh, network. I think it kind of was, I think it always was that to some degree. It's, it's much more overtly that now. Um, but yeah, I, even back then I went in there thinking that, you know, I'm, the audience is not necessarily going to be on the side of, of my argument. You know, they're, they're much more likely to, uh, to react to kind of the scaremongering idea that video games are turning people into killers than, uh, than, you know, any other factor. And I just thought the argument was preposterous. You know, I'm, I'm someone who has played, you know, video games for years. I used to be the PC gamer office champion of Quake 2. I was really good at Quake. And people like Dave Grossman would tell you that that skill set of being, being able to kill people, you know, with a mouse controlled rocket launcher <laughs> translates into killing ability in the real world. I've been to a firing range. I fired, you know, a variety of real weapons. It's nothing like sitting in front of a computer shooting people with a mouse. Um, but the, the idea that they can somehow condition you um, or uh, you know, somehow kind of make you immune to uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the dangers or the horrors of real violence, I think, is slightly preposterous. And I think you know, if we're trying to solve the problems of, uh, of gun violence in this country, there are much more obvious indicators that we can be looking at. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned that part of the reason you came to San Francisco is because you wanted to get involved in the uh, film industry. So how did you actually break into the film industry? So around the, I mean, this goes way back. It's funny. I kind of had these parallel ambitions uh, and I always say that I've been ex extremely, extremely lucky to be able to, you know, have these two separate careers where I've been able to, able to pursue both of the things that I loved, you know, doing growing up and wanted to do professionally. One was video games and the other one was, uh, was movies. Uh, and I, I, you know, when I was writing my first little dummy video game reviews, when I was like 15, 16, I was also writing these really terrible movie scripts, you know, in the, in, in the, without having any idea what I was doing. Um, I, you know, I, but I, I knew that I wanted to be a Hollywood screenwriter. Uh, and I never really pursued it very seriously. The, you know, the video game thing, that career kind of took off for me. And I just, you know, went down that road and I thought, well, look, you know, one out of two, you know, dreams ain't bad. I'm pretty happy to be doing this is what I always wanted to do. And, you know, eventually became editor in chief of PC Gamer and ran that magazine for several years. And, um, you know, the idea of becoming, uh, doing the Hollywood thing kind of, you know, I almost kind of halfway forgot about it. Uh, but when the chance came to come to America, it kind of resurrected that a little bit. And then what happened was, um, three or four years after I came out here, the company that I was working for that published PC Gamer had a terrible, terrible financial year. They got caught up in the whole dot-com crash that everyone else did around uh, 2000, and I got laid off. And I had saved up, I guess, enough money to be able to live, you know, very, very frugally. You know, if I just ate kind of ramen noodles and, you know, chef boy ID for a year, if that didn't kill me, I could pretty much survive long enough to try to bash out some movie scripts and see if I could really do this thing. It's interesting. Again, I always think that circumstances often, um, you know, even what might seem like very bleak circumstances at the time, 
can really, really work for you. I think that if I had, if that had never happened to me, if I'd never been laid off, it's entirely possible that I'd still be editing PC Gamer today, that I would have just continued to do, you know, the very safe and comfortable, you know, thing that I enjoyed doing. And even though there might have been a bigger dream, a bigger ambition out there, the idea of cashing in this very, you know, this job that I enjoyed and was perfectly safe and was perfectly stable to go off and do something that might seem, you know, very crazy and unlikely to to bear any fruit. That's just, you know, I don't know if I have the courage to take that kind of risk. But my my hand basically got forced by the fact that I was laid off that, you know, I, I and so I took that year, like I said, when I, the kind of the ramen noodle year and just wrote um, a bunch of movie scripts and I wrote as many as I could. And, um, you know, the idea was that I'm, I'm kind of an autodidact. I don't do very well at all learning by reading or going to seminars. I tend to learn better just by trying and failing and learning from my own mistakes. Uh, and so I wrote a ton of scripts, each one, you know, slightly less terrible than the one before it until I eventually had one that I thought, you know, I wouldn't be totally ashamed to show to someone. And I sent them to, you know, various managers and agents and, uh, you know, studios and producers and people that, um, you know, accept unsolicited material from wannabe screenwriters and found it, you know, a manager, um, you know, responded to this script that I sent and, and signed me up as, as one of their writers. And that was kind of how I got my first foot in the door. Now, how do you find how like if you're an aspiring if an aspiring screenwriter is listening to this, how do you even find those people to send your script to in the first place? I still don't even know if there's an easy answer to that question. I will say that I think you know I've not really looked into this for for some time, um, but I do think it's much easier now uh, than it was back when I started uh, fifteen or so years ago. And when I say easier, I don't mean like it's easier easier. I just mean that. The, the the resources are more readily available. You know, there are, there's a whole world now of screenwriting uh, message boards and forums and support groups, and there's a bunch of really, really helpful blogs and other informational resources out there that will teach you or, or help you learn not just how to write a decent script, but then also, you know, what to do with it after that. And you can find online lists and resources of companies out there that will actually accept unsolicited material from writers. Most companies won't. Like if you send your script to, you know, Warner Brothers or CAA and you don't have any representation and no one knows who you are, li- they will literally just send it back to you um, unopened or, you know, the email will just bounce back to you. You have to find someone that will kind of take you on and represent you. And that usually comes in the form of a manager. Like I said, I had a manager long before I had an agent. Uh, and that manager, um, you know, kind of saw, I guess, in the material that I had submitted, um, you know, some potential. And what ma- what a good manager will do is not just try to, you know, represent you and your work in Hollywood and, and, and also, you know, put you up for jobs and get you work. But they'll also kind of mentor you and try to bring you on as a writer. And, and you know, even if you're not completely the finished article, if they see the potential there for you to become one, um, they will take you on and, and try to nurture you a little bit. And that's what happened with me. I mean, when I signed with my manager, um, you know, I don't think I was in any way ready for prime time. You know, the, the, the script that got me signed um, is probably something that would never get made even today. But, you know, there was something in it where, you know, the guy that I submitted the script to said, you know, this, you know, the, the, this guy might have the makings of something. Well, so now was it when they put your script in the wrong pile, was that to get your manager? Oh, you heard this? You, you've heard the wrong pile story? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, what happened? And again, this comes back to the idea that, you know, it's often better to be lucky than good. Um, in my case, I had sent this script off to uh, a management company. And typically what happens when you submit a script to anyone really is it's never going to be read by 
you know, the principal person at the company or the decision maker, it usually goes through a whole phalanx of readers and, um, uh, you know, people who determine whether or not this is something that is even worthy of the attention of one of the principal people at the company. So on a normal day, my scripts would have gone into one of those piles and perhaps a reader would have looked at it and said, eh, maybe not so much. You know, the, 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 the guy above me doesn't need to be troubled by this script and it may have just been sent back to me rejected. But uh, by pure happenstance, uh, my script got put into the, literally got put into the wrong pile. It got put into the pile that the company's founder and principal, you know, would take home like the cream of the crop scripts to, uh, you know, to read over the weekend and, and, and read, you know, for consideration whether or not he wanted to represent these writers. And like I said, my, my script had, had just kind of leapfrogged all of those without ever being read simply by virtue of being put in the, in the wrong pile. And this guy called me over the weekend that he had taken the script home and said, I don't even know why the script is in the pile. There should be, you know, some kind of coverage or, you know, some kind of notes on this from the guy who read it. But I, you know, I ended up reading half of it anyway, and I already know that I want to sign you. So again, I was just really, really lucky that, you know, I managed to kind of, you know, get through that, what, what normally would have been, you know, kind of this vanguard between me and the person I was trying to reach. Right. Okay. So then you wrote the book of Eli, which actually got produced. How did that project first get started? Well, so Eli didn't come, I mean, you know, again, it's, it, it's interesting how when you, often when you get your first movie made, you know, it, it shows up in the trade papers as, you know, that writer's first project. Eli was probably, I don't know, like the 20th thing that I wrote, but, you know, people don't ever really recognize or pay attention to all the other scripts that you had to write just to get good enough to write something that might actually get made. But there, so there was the script that I, that I wrote, which got me signed with my manager. And then I wrote another script after that, which we managed to get optioned by a small independent company. And then I kind of jobbed around for a while, uh, doing kind of small time rewrite work on, you know, kind of smaller movies, you know, kind of B movies. And it's all good experience, you know, and you get to meet writers and actors and directors and producers. And, you know, you meet with the people at the studios and you start to get a sense for, you know, how to navigate this business and what it takes to really be a, you know, a working writer in Hollywood. Um, but Eli was just, was just a spec script. It was an idea that I, you know, that I really wanted to write. You know, I had spent the last couple of years prior to that, you know, working on other people's movies, doing little rewrite jobs, you know, trying to fix other people's scripts that were broken. And I don't find that tremendously rewarding or satisfying for me. The most rewarding or satisfying thing to do is to come up with an original idea and, and create something out of whole cloth. And Eli was an idea that I that had been, you know, just kind of bouncing around in my head for a long time. Just try, the idea of trying to kind of do like an old fashioned uh, Western, like a wandering, you know, man with no name, almost like a Zatoichi samurai type movie. I've always been attracted to those kind of characters. And I wrote Eli in an attempt to try and, you know, capture that idea um, and send it to my managers, you know, as what, you know, what they call a spec script, which is a, a script that nobody asks you or hires you or assigns you to write. You're not getting paid to write it. You, you know, you, you come up with the idea yourself, you write it on your own volition, um, on, you know, speculatively in the hope that once it's finished, someone might be interested in buying it and making it. And that's what happened with Eli. You know, we, I, I wrote the script and we sent it out and we had a few people interested in it and Joel Silver, um, took it into Warner Brothers and said, I want to make this movie. And, um, you know, the, the, the story is actually far longer and kind of more roller coastery than, than the summary I'm giving you. But, you know, the, the short version of it is, you know, we were lucky enough to get Denzel and the Hughes brothers were attracted to the material. And it was actually made relatively, you know, for an original piece of material, you got to remember the, the, the speed of development in Hollywood is really, really moves often at a very, very glacial 
pace. You know, unless you're, you know, operating in the echelons of, you know, Star Wars or Marvel movies, you know, where they're just, you know, those movies are getting made. You know, we pretty much know those movies are going to get made. Um, with an original piece of material, you know, it can sit around for years and years and years and get caught up in all kinds of development hell and go through all kinds of writers before it, you know, ever sees the light of day, if at all. Eli, by that standard, was actually relatively fast. I think I wrote it in late 2006. We sold it to Warner Brothers in early 2007, and it was in theaters January 2010. So from beginning to end, it was all over three years, which might sound like a long time, but by movie standards, it's actually staggeringly fast. Right. Well, until so you mentioned that the premise is that there's a, a kind of lone wanderer in a post-apocalyptic landscape, and he has the last copy of the Bible that anybody knows about. Uh, how did that idea come to you? Well, like I said, it, it originally started with very pulpy roots. You know, I, I grew up on movies like, you know, The Man With No Name, Fistful of Dollars, and Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I've always loved the idea of that kind of lone wandering hero. I grew up on Seven Samurai. And, you know, to some extent, you know, there's a little Obi-Wan Kenobi in there as well, because that in itself is obviously inspired by, uh, you know, Star Wars was to some extent inspired by, um, you know, Westerns and old samurai movies. There is something, I think, very mythic about the idea of that kind of, you know, that nomadic character, that lone wandering warrior prophet. Um, and I originally had this, the idea for Eli as that kind of guy, but I didn't really have like a foundation for him. I didn't really know what the movie was about. And I'm not religious at all. It's funny, a lot of people who see the movie assume that I'm a Christian. I'm not at all. I'm an atheist. But I'm fascinated by the way that religion and spirituality and faith does motivate people. It's clearly one of the great, you know, social forces in the world and has been for thousands of years. And I thought I, I saw kind of an opportunity to try through the, you know, through the very kind of popcorny nature of the movie. I mean, it is basically a kind of a good old fashioned kind of action adventure, you know, post-apocalyptic thriller. But I wanted underneath all of that for it to be really about something. And I really was really attracted to this idea of. Um, you know, this having this conversation about whether or not religion is a positive or a negative force. And the idea that I arrived at that I think it's, you know, it's essentially down to whoever's hands it's in. You know, I was really motivated by this, this great old quote from the Alan Ladd movie Shane, where Shane says, you know, a gun is only as good or as bad as the man who wears it. And I think that's true of, you know, you can say that same thing about the Bible as well. You know, there are people, you know, there's, you've got Mother Teresa on, on one side who kind of took her religious faith and turned it into a way to help people and be, be a tremendous positive force in the world. Um, and then on the other side of the world, you know, you've got things like ISIS and Jimmy Swagger and these kind of people who have, you know, turned religion basically into just a big confidence trick or, or an excuse to kill people. And so it's this incredibly, incredibly, you know, motivational force. We know that it really, really motivates people. Whether or not it motivates people to do good in the world or bad in the world is the conversation that I wanted the movie to have. How did people like the, the various production people and, um, you know, people at the studio, how did, were they at all leery about having a story with the Bible like used like that? Or what did it help the movie get made? I mean, what, which is how did that play out? It helped. It, the irony was it helped the movie get sold, but then it actually became an, a, an obstacle to the movie getting made. And you see this, this happens a lot in Hollywood. I think um, with Hollywood often, um, you know, the reach often uh, uh, overextends the grasp, which is to say when they, when Warner Brothers first saw the movie, they were really attracted to doing this thing that was like, they were, this is, this is kind of, you know, edgy and dangerous and it's, you know, it's dealing with these controversial themes. And so they originally were really excited about, you know, every studio wants to kind of try and do that and do something, you know, that's a little bit out of the box or unexpected, you know, something that's not quite so safe. And so they were attracted to this idea of this kind of gritty, violent movie that had this, these kind of religious, these kind of faith based underpinnings. Um, and th but then when the time comes somewhat later to actually write a check for $80 million to make the film, they look at the script again and go, 
this is kind of edgy and dangerous and controversial, and we're not quite sure about this. And what eventually happened was the studio, in fact, didn't make it. Um, it's not a studio film. It's actually an independent film. Warner Brothers had the opportunity to make the film right up until the last minute, and we went to you know the green light movie where the head of the studio decides whether or not he's going to make the film, and they ultimately said no. And this is with, with Denzel attached and the directors and this whole package. The movie was basically ready to go, and the studio said, uh, we're kind of having cold feet. We don't want to do it now. And so they said no, and we were back to square one, and we thought the movie was dead. And what happened was a company called... Um, Alcon, which at the time it just had a big hit with, uh, remember the Blind Side, the movie with Sandra Bullock, which he kind of adopts the the football player. Um, they were looking for this kind of material, and they basically came in and and wrote the check themselves, and basically kind of funded the whole movie outside of the studio system. Warner Brothers still distributed the film, um, but it wasn't made as a studio movie, and that was actually a, a, a terrific for us because it meant that once. We were given, you know, the budget. There was, we basically had creative freedom to make the film that we wanted. Like the studio notes kind of went away, you know, because there was no studio. And we got notes from the producers, and Denzel had his own thoughts, and we would, um, and, you know, we would work within those. But it didn't really go. What, what, what we originally thought was, you know, the death of the project, which is Warner Brothers saying no to financing. I think event, eventually really helped us because we got to make the movie essentially as an independent film without anything like the typical kind of studio development process that you might see a big movie like that go through. Huh. We'll, we'll say a bit more about the public response to the movie because you mentioned some people think it's like Christian propaganda or something. Just what were the what was the range of opinions that you heard from people in response to the movie? You know the you know the, the the reaction to the movie I think is really really uh, divisive. I think you know people tend to either love it or hate it. You know it's uh, you know like if you go to the, on Rotten Tomatoes, fifty uh, percent of people like it, fifty percent of people don't, and that may or may not be because it's a good movie or a bad movie. I think it's something to do with the fact that I think any time you deal with religion. Um, people instantly kind of already have their kind of preconceived notions that they bring into the conversation. And that's interesting. It's part of what the the audience reaction to the movie, I think, to some extent, kind of brought out what the theme of the film was, which was, you know, two people can read the Bible and take two completely different things from it. It's all subjective. Um, And there's no, you know, truly objective view of, of, uh, of faith. And I think people that were Christian really came to the movie and embraced it. I got so many, so many messages through Facebook and email and different places from people who are, you know, really deeply religious and and take their faith very seriously for whom the film was really profound. And they felt like the movie spoke to them very deeply. They saw it as a very, um, you know, a positive affirmation of their faith. And though I'm not a person of faith myself, I take tremendous, you know, satisfaction in knowing that the movie works for them uh, on that level. People who are, atheist or more cynical about religion saw it as christian propaganda and were less likely to um uh, embrace it which is weird because again i'm an atheist myself and the point of the movie was not to um try and promote you know christian ideology or or to say that god is real i think in the fictional universe of this movie, God is real. I think that's really the only reading of the film that makes any sense. It's impossible, I think, for Eli to kind of do the things that he does and for the, his journey to end the way that it does, unless you subscribe to the notion that in the fictional universe of this film, there is actually a real God watching over him. But, you know, I've also written movies about vampires and aliens. I don't necessarily <laughs> believe that vampires and aliens are real either. To me, it's just another very interesting um, fictional mythology on which to base the film. Right. I mean, I'm not religious at all, and I'm, I tend to be uh, hostile to, uh, to religious films like that. But I really like the book of Eli. I thought the, the supernatural elements, as it were, were 
understated enough that I, I just enjoyed it as a science fiction movie. Yeah, it tries not to, you know, rub it in your face. I think, you know, if you do kind of respond to the faith-based aspects of it, I do think there's there's an extra level there for you. Like, again, I don't think it's a coincidence that people of faith um, are the ones that seem to like the movie the most, even though, again, the movie tries to take a very neutral view of this. You know, even though I think by the end it's, it ends in this kind of very affirming way for Eli and his faith in God is kind of validated at the end, there's a lot of – the movie spends a lot of time, you know, through Gary Oldman's character to some degree talking about how religion can be really damaging and dangerous. And the backstory of the movie is basically, you know, there was this kind of these religious wars that destroyed the world. And part of the reason why the Bibles had all been wiped out is because people recognized it as one of the reasons why the world had gone to shit. Um, and it was also, and that's why it was very important to us that when you know at the end of the movie and the, the the book that Eli's carrying ends up on the shelf, that it wasn't that wasn't like a temple or a religious place. That it was really just another um, you know historical. Te- it, 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 it had historical interest of wow, you know, people really believe this stuff. And as we rebuild our civilization, it's going to be interesting for us to know all the different things that people believed in the you know in the world that came before. Not necessarily saying that we're going to subscribe to those same beliefs, but um, you know, even if you just look at it as a cautionary tale, wow, we used to believe this crazy stuff and look what it did to the world. Um, I think that's, you know, it, it speaks to that kind of old idea of if you don't, um, you know, know the, the, the you know, historical mistakes of the past, you're, you're condemned to repeat them. Right. Well, uh, one thing you said that I thought was really interesting is you said that Glenn Beck really liked the movie and that you see him more as kind of like a Gary Oldman character type person. Yeah, he's- I, I, had re- I had read somewhere, I don't know if I ever saw it directly, but I had read somewhere that Glenn Beck was a big fan of the film. And again, uh, the um, it was very much embraced by um, people on the right, uh, you know, again, kind of Christian conservatives and kind of fundamentalist type people. And I, I thought in Glenn Beck's case, it was particularly interesting because the Gary Oldman character, Carnegie, was very much modeled on people like Glenn Beck, people whom, you know, kind of the TV evangelists that you see on TV late at night or on Sunday mornings who, you know, I think a lot of those people are snake oil salesmen. I think that they're basically identified and are exploiting people's genuine faith or their search, you know, their, their, their desire to believe in something greater than them. They've identified very cleverly that as a way to make money out of those people. And I think that's very cynical. I think it's quite evil and dangerous. Uh, and Carnegie was really kind of meant to, um, uh, symbolize that idea, and the, we we had to lose uh, you know a lot of scenes as you often do in the making of a film. Originally, in my early drafts, Carnegie was much more of a showman. Like he would actually go out on to the balcony and address the town, and kind of sound very much like you know a uh, a TV evangelist or a, you know a Glenn Beck type person. You know, kind of pretending to be this person that you know is is a believer in the in this faith, so that he can motivate these people to do what they want. You know, um, I remember Alan Hughes telling me that. Um, there's a little monologue at, uh, halfway through the movie where Gary Ullman basically talks about how the Bible is not just a book. It's a weapon you know, that can be used to exploit people and control people and make them do what you want to do because um, you know, his belief is that um, people that are attracted to religious faith are often people that are somewhat desperate, who uh, aren't necessarily uh, strong-minded. Again, I don't necessarily uh, believe that, but I think there are people that do believe that and have used it you know, very successfully to enrich themselves. And Carnegie, the Gary Ullman character, is in many ways, um, I think, someone like Glenn Beck. So I just thought it was particularly ironic that, uh, that Glenn Beck kind of, uh, I, I, as I heard it, saw the movie and liked it without recognizing that the movie was supposed to be criticizing people like him. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, I also wanted to talk to you about this other recent big science fiction movie that you were involved with, After Earth. Do you want to just say uh, kind of what your experience on that movie was like? Yeah, I guess, you know, it, it's interesting. When I, when I finished on Eli, um, I remember sitting in the edit bay and I, they, they showed me the, the, the cut of the movie for the first time. And I literally was so overwhelmed um, at, the end of, at the end of the first time that I saw the film. Um, not because, you know, I think the film is tremendously emotionally powerful or anything, and I'm kind of immune to it, you know, because I wrote it. So it's not like the movie has the same effects on me that it might on someone else who doesn't know what's going to happen next. But I was so, you know, it was such a culmination of a dream for me to, you know, to write this movie and then see it kind of writ large on a screen, you know, and it was true to the script. I mean, they changed very little about the script that I wrote. Um, and you know, it's very rare in this business to write a script uh, that sells and then actually see it made with, you know, major actors, you know, people are, you know, on the level of Denzel Washington and, and Gary Oldman. And then also to see it produced in a way that's basically faithful to what you wrote. Oftentimes when you work on a movie, it gets all kind of bent and, and pushed and pulled out of shape by all the various people, all the egos, um, producers, directors, you know, actors, people on the, on the film who basically are more powerful than you, because everyone on a film is more powerful than the writer. Um, that it's really, you know, just a crapshoot whether or not when you get into this business, if you're ever going to produce anything that finds its way to an audience um, in a way that is indicative of what you originally set out to do. And Eli is very much that. I watched the movie and I was like, my God, they, they, they filmed the movie that I wrote. This is almost exactly what I had in my head writ large on a screen with Oscar winning actors. Um, but it's even greater than I could imagine because, you know, the Hughes brothers, you know, made it look beautiful and it was, you know, so much more artistically, you know, just pretty and, and, and the Atticus Ross put this beautiful soundtrack on it that by the end of it, I literally, I just, I just cried because I just did the, the emotion of, of, of seeing this dream realized was so, um, uh, was just, was just so resonant. It was so, so emotionally affecting to me, but I remember thinking shortly afterwards, this is it. This is the, this is the one that you get, like you've played your Joker really early in your career. You know, you get, you've had, you had a movie made based on your original idea that's faithful to your original vision and it's really good. Um, this, this never happens. So the fact that it's happened once means that it's probably never going to, that that's probably it. It's never going to happen again. And so off the strength of Eli, I got hired to go work on After Earth, which was his original idea that Will Smith had. And I had, a, I got to say, I had a tremendous time working on that film. I love Will. I got to hang out with Will, you know, for weeks at a time. He's one of the greatest people I've ever met in this business. I love working with him. I got to work with M. Night Shyamalan, who I think is also just a totally lovely guy. Enjoyed really working with him. I had a tremendous experience working on the film. But it was one of those ones where, you know, unlike Eli, where it was basically just kind of me from beginning to end. There was another writer that kind of came and went uh, on Eli. But, you know, I ended up with sole credit on the film and the film is kind of 90 percent what I wrote um, with After Earth. That was kind of more the, the typical Hollywood process where I wrote a draft of the script and then other writers came on after me. And Knight, you know, because he's a writer director, ended up rewriting a bunch of stuff. And by the time I saw the film that came out the other end. I didn't recognize it the same way that I recognized, you know, Eli when I had written that because I, I the, the film had gone through a lot of developmental changes. And, you know, while the basic structure and story of the film is the same thing that we had, that, that Will and I had originally um, developed together. Um, I think, you know, there were so many other, you know, minds and, and opinions and egos and whatever you want to call it that, that ended up, um, affecting what movie came out at the end of that process, I just I looked and I was like, yeah, I kind of rec I, I remember that bit and that bit, but like the film wasn't what I originally thought it was going to be. And that's not to say I think it's a terrible film. I actually think it's a better 
film than than the reviews uh, suggested because I think you know between Knight and Jaden Smith there was just too many like really soft targets for the press to go well, I was just it was just too easy for them to attack that film so I don't think it's as bad as the critics I still hear from people all the time that really actually really like it right now I totally agree with you about critics being hard on the film I mean I just saw that it was 11 percent on Rotten Tomatoes so I never watched it but in preparation for this interview my girlfriend and I just watched it a, two nights ago oh and, wow you took a bullet <laughs> I, I I mean uh, we both felt that it was, uh, yeah, I was expecting it to be just ghastly, and I thought it was okay. I mean, you know, it, um, uh, I was really stunned by the degree to which it failed to be horrible. Yeah, and like I said, I think, you know, we, li- we live in this kind of media culture right now, especially on the internet, where there's so much snark, and people seem to delight so much in tearing things down. I mean, we see this all the time. When something falls short of expectations, the media descends upon it just like a pack of vultures, and I find it really disheartening. Um, and in the case of After Earth, like I said, I'll fully, I, I look at that film, and, and from someone who saw it from the inside out, I can see the flaws, and I can see the parts that work and the parts that don't work, but I can ultimately say, yeah, I think there was a, I, I think ultimately there was a better version of this film conceptually than ultimately was able to make it through you know the the you know the rigmarole and the and, and the various um you know roller coaster rides that that are a, a typical you know film development process um but i don't think it's as bad as all that i still hear from people that like that again that really enjoy it. particularly it's like dads of of kids really like it because the thing that i always liked about it was really just meant to be you know, aside from, you know, kind of the evolved animals and the kind of crazy monsters that are chasing you around and stuff like that, what always attracted me to it and what Will originally wanted to do was just a movie about an estranged father and a son who through this um, experience that they went through kind of learned, you know, finally find a way, found a way to reconnect as a father and a son. And I think the movie to some extent manages to achieve that. But um, it's not, I think, what people necessarily want from a Will Smith movie. Will was very determined to to play this part very seriously and be this very buttoned down, very kind of dour military dad. And I think so many people these days just want Will to be, you know, men in black Will, you know, oh, hell no. Like they want that. (laughs) And he wasn't he, he made a decision to try and do something different. And I just don't think audiences at large, you know, really responded to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked that, though. And I mean, I, I may be a sympathetic uh, audience for this movie because it really reminded me of sort of a Heinlein juvenile, like Tunnel in the Sky, the kind of stuff I grew up reading. And, uh, you yeah, know, it was an OK, uh, you know, example of that sort of movie. I, I yeah, and like I said, you know, I, I, at, the, at the end of the day, I, I had a tremendous experience where like everything is a learning experience. Right. So I learned a lot about you know, navigating the politics and the diplomacy of, of, you know, working on a big movie like that, where the studio's got a money, got a lot of money on the line. And there are a lot of people with, you know, their own agendas and their own egos, you know, when you deal with like, you know, Knight and Will, these are a lot of people that are kind of, these are people that are used to, um, you know, the movie, what being what they want it to be. And, you know, when there's so many different um, cooks in the kitchen, I think that can often be to the detriment of a project. Yeah. So, I mean, you said there are bits of the movie that you can kind of recognize as things you did. Is there anything you could point to and say, oh, yeah, that's something that I, that was my idea? Or, or uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the spaceship crash is, is very much mine. Um, you know, some of the, uh, you know, just the, I mean, I would say just kind of the overall bones of, of what the movie is. You know, the way that the ship crashes and the experience they go through afterwards. A lot of that came from Will. He had a kind of a general idea of what he wanted the kind of the main structure of the film 
would be, but I helped him flesh that out, and most of that is still there. You know, all the stuff about kind of the ranger school and, you know, the, the war that exists between, you know, mankind and the aliens in the future and, you know, what the evolved version of Earth would look like. There's little things that I added, you know, just kind of the, you know, kind of the little geothermal hotspots that you have to reach every evening because, you know, the, the, you know, the jungle kind of freezes over at night and things like that. A lot of little almost kind of video gamey type things that I was able to add that I felt, you know, helped the movie move along. But, um, you know, there's almost no, like for example, there's almost none of my dialogue left in the film at all. I mean, it's like literally I can point to like one line here or there, but that's the kind of stuff that tends to get rewritten the most when you get rewritten by other writers. How about the idea of the alien that senses fear and uh, the details about how people can overcome their fears? Is that something that was kind of in play when you were working on the script? I came up with the idea for the Ursa, which was this, you know, the, the, the idea of a, of a creature that had been kind of genetically engineered to hunt humans. And it was specifically bred by these aliens for that purpose. Um, in terms of the fear thing, like, so the, the, I'll give you one example, like the whole big, you know, danger is real, fear is a choice, which kind of turned into a tagline in the movie. And that big speech that Will gives, you know, about how, you know, you must control your fear. None of that, that's all like long after I left. I don't even know who wrote that. Um, you know, there were, other, there were other writers uncredited that came and went on, on the movie after me as well. So I think that stuff's really cool, but I don't take... Um, any credit for it you know the the, ba the basic structure of Jaden's character you know having to fight that thing at the end and fire off the beak and all of that stuff was in my draft of the script but the context of learning to kind of basically you know this idea of this beast that would hunt um that would hunt you by making you afraid and then tracking you the pheromones that you secrete when you are i actually think that stuff's all very clever but that all that was all developed after i left mm. Yeah, no, I, th I thought that stuff was all cool. I really actually really like the trailer for this movie. So, you know, if, if nothing else, people should check out the trailer. Yeah, just watch the cool. trailer. <laughs> Much quicker, and it's free. <laughs> um, all right, so let's talk about your new novel, Abomination. Uh, tell us about how this uh, project's come about. Well, so, okay, so this is actually an interesting segue from what we were just talking about. You know, one of the things that I have learned from you know 15 years or so of working as a screenwriter in this business is that as a writer, you are often you know, not someone who has much control or much say or much equity in terms of what the finished product is going to be. With Eli, I just got lucky. Um, you know, I sold that script. And again, got to remember, once you sell it, I even tell this to writers, once you sell a script, um, that's it. You've sold it. It's like selling anything. Like if I sell you my car and you, and you pay, pay me money for the car and you become the legal owner of the car, you can then do whatever you want with it. I no longer have any right to say to you, well, you know, don't repaint it, you know, or don't drive it over the speed limit or don't drive it off a cliff. You have the right to do all those things if you want because you now own it. And the same is true with a script. If you sell an original piece of material to a studio, contractually they are obliged to, to allow you the first – you have to have first refusal on doing the first rewrite of the script. But after that, they can fire you. They can do. They can bring on other writers. They can do whatever they want. You know, even or even if you stay on the movie, you know, stars and producers and directors will often have more equity and more of a say and more of an ability to affect what the finished product is uh, than you do as a writer. So with Abomination, the original idea for that story was that I would do it as a movie. But I remember looking at it, this idea, and thinking, well. Here's all the reasons why if I write this as a movie script, a studio is probably going to say no to it. You know, it's it's a period piece. 
Um, you know, it would be relatively expensive to do because it has all these kind of crazy monster effects and big battle scenes and stuff like that. You know, it's set in ninth century England, which, you know, a lot of studios will tell you, oh, we're never going to make a money. No one's going to come see that movie. So I would, I, there's a good chance that I could write that movie, spend six months, you know, putting, you know, all my blood, sweat and tears into it. And it would just, studios would just say no, and it's just not going to get made. And nobody reads scripts outside of Hollywood. So you've spent a lot of time writing this story that maybe 20 or 30 people will, would ever see. And, you know, for a writer, that's very disheartening. What you want to do when you write something is have people see and enjoy it and, and get that satisfaction. And so it just it occurred to me that there was maybe another way to get this story told in a way that I'm completely in control of it. And that's to write it as, as a novel. Uh, you know, when you when you write a movie script, you don't really have a finished product. You have the blueprint for what you hope one day will become a finished product if enough people come along and all agree to make it. Um, but when you have the manuscript for a novel, you essentially do have a finished product. And you don't even need a publisher anymore. You know, I look at writers like Hugh Howey and Andy Weir, who have circumvented the, the, pub, the traditional publishing model completely and found tremendous success just putting their books directly on Amazon and talking directly to their audience um, and, and basically bypassing all the traditional gatekeepers that we associate with book publishing. So I thought, well, I can at least do that. Like, even if I can't find, even if there's like a publisher that doesn't want to take the book on, I've got enough of a following on social media and people that, you know, have responded to my work in the past that I could probably put this on Amazon. I could self-publish it and, you know, bang the drum and promote it myself and get, you know, some people to read it. And maybe it takes off, maybe it doesn't. But I know at least that the version of the story that I put out there is the one that I wanted to tell. And nobody fired me, nobody rewrote me, nobody forced me to change the story into something I didn't want it to be. So I did it kind of as an experiment. It was a way sometimes when you get the same thing happened on Eli, when you when you're really possessed by a story and you you just love the idea. And even if it's not the most commercial idea or if it's something that you think, ah, no one's ever gonna buy this, when you, when you've got one of those ideas that just won't let you sleep at night, sometimes the only way to kind of get it out of your system is to write it out. And so I wrote Abomination just kind of in my free time over the course of I think two years, like between, I mean, there was like six months where I didn't even touch it. Like I had to set it aside because I was working on other things, but whenever I wasn't, you know, occupied by, you know, whatever paid writing I was, I had been hired to do, I would write another chapter of abomination here or there. And I finally had a, a draft of it that, um, I was going to sell public. We eventually did end up finding a publisher for it. But like I said, the plan was just to originally self publish it. Right. And, and the publisher Inkshare, is it sort of an interesting hybrid of self publishing and traditional publishing? Yeah, I really liked them. It's, you know, again, it, it was kind of a really interesting, it's almost like a Goldilocks story of like the porridge is too hot, porridge is too cold. This one is just right. I had initially approached, you know, what we think of as the traditional publishers, um, you know, about Abomination. And a couple of people read it and said, we like this book, we just have no idea how to market it. Because it is this kind of like weird mashup of like, is it horror? Is it fantasy? Is it historical? Because, you know, there's elements of, you know, English history. It's not set in kind of a magical kingdom. It's set, you know, in ninth century England. But there's magic and there's monsters and there's also these really horrific elements. So in terms of like what shelf you put it on, I think traditional publishers that need to be able to very easily kind of categorize their books in order to market them uh, and know how to sell them didn't know quite what to make of it. So I thought, okay, fine, I'll just self-publish it. That's what I was going to do anyway. And I looked into self-publishing and I did have some very educational cause with people like Hugh Howey and Andy Weir who've had tremendous success with books, you know, like Wool and The Martian. And they did go the traditional straight up self-publishing route. You know, they wrote the books, they put them on Amazon, they published them on their own websites and they just, you know, because the, those stories were really good, um, they just kind of went viral. You know, people responded to them, they started sharing them with friends and that's the kind of, you know, self-publishing success that you can find these days. 
And so I looked into that. I was talking to Hugh and Andy because I was going to go in that direction. I was asking them, like, what can I learn from your experience, you know, having published these books? What, you know, what, what would your do's and don'ts be? And they gave me a bunch of great advice. And I was looking into self-publishing it. So, you know, I would hire an editor and pay them to, you know, go through the manuscript and make corrections and suggest notes. I would hire a cover artist and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. Um, and I knew that I could, you know, to some extent leverage whatever my profile is as a writer to promote it and help it find an audience. And then I discovered through my agent, this company called Inkshares, um, who are kind of like Kickstarter for books, I guess, in that, you know, you can submit your book idea to them uh, and, you know, they'll put it up on their website and, um, you know, there's a little presentation. Here's, you know, read a sample chapter. Here's a little video of me talking about what the book is or what the book's going to be. And if enough people, you know, like the idea, you know, they can go onto the website and and pre-order the book ahead of time. And Inkshares has a very specific algorithm where they figure out, okay, if we hit this funding number, we can, you know, that covers our costs in terms of, you know, printing and 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 publishing and distributing, you know, so many copies of the book. Um, and so we crowdfunded Abomination that way and we hit our number um, and we were able to publish the book. And, and in the end, it's, I think, been a really good experience because it does have a lot of the the benefits of self-publishing. As a writer, I think I probably had more creative control over the book, uh, not just what's inside the pages, but also what's on the cover and how it's marketed. Um, and, you know, really kind of across the board, I, I felt like I had a lot of um, a lot of say in how the book was produced, uh, perhaps more so than I might have with a traditional publisher. Um, but at the same time, Inkshares does also bring a lot of um, stuff to the table that as a self-published author, you might not have. You know, Publish, you know, marketing the book and coming up with cover artwork and editing it and promoting it and distributing all that stuff. That's a lot of work for a self-published author. It's why a lot of self-published authors, you know, don't find successes because they're not willing or not able to do all the stuff they need to do to make their book look attractive and to find an audience. Inkshares does all of that for you. Um, and so it was really a great mix of, um, like I said, the creative freedom that, that I would associate with self-publishing, but a lot of the benefits that a traditional publisher have as well. Right. Now, so when a lot of my friends do crowdfunding campaigns like Kickstarters, it's like a full-time job for them for that month to get the word out about the Kickstarter. Did you do anything like that or did you just kind of put the page up and let nature take its course? No, a little a little bit. You know, we kind of it's interesting we had kind of two rounds of of promotion in that when the Kickstarter, I say Kickstarter, sorry, when the Inkshares page first went up, you typically have um I think 45 days to hit your funding goal. And it's not a tremendously high number you know the reality is to print and publish and produce a certain number of books is really not that expensive um but you do have to hit that number and you're given 45 days to do it um uh, we actually hit our number in 20 hours which was terrific and that was partly because i went out you know of my own volitions okay i i have these twitter followers i have you know some profile from the movies that i've worked on and people know who i am um, and I'm going to go out there and just basically bang the drum as loudly as I can. And I, you know, did interviews with websites and, you know, I promoted the hell out of it on Twitter and on Facebook. And I just did everything I could to direct people to that page and to ask them to, uh, you know, uh, uh, back the book or pre-order the book so that we could hit that number. Uh, and so we got it over the number at that point, you know, the book's going to be made. So that's really cool. And then, you know, that was in February. And then the book actually does go into, you know, final copy edits and you produce the cover art uh, and, you know, you, you you print all the copies and you distribute them. And then once you actually get to publication day, you kind of have to go back out and do it all over again. So I just did another round of publicity just recently where, you know, now the book's actually out there in the shops. You're trying to get people to, you know, 
buy it and read it or whatever. So I ended up doing kind of two rounds of um, publicity on it. And I just want, you mentioned the cover art. I just want to mention that this is a really physically nice looking book. I mean, it looks as good as any other book from any traditional publisher. The cover art's gorgeous and the production values are great. So Yeah, that's part of the reason why I'm really glad that you mentioned that um, and, and, and that people do seem to pick up on that. One of the, I, I've seen a lot of self-published books and you can publish them. You know, Amazon has a system called CreateSpace that will allow you to you know, self-publish a book, not just as like a digital, you know, Kindle type edition, an ebook, but also as an actual physical book that Amazon will print on demand and send to people who order it. But unless you're really, really willing to put a ton of work into the design of the book, and there are some people that have done this, um, there's, it, it's unlikely to produce the kind of result that you would think, okay, this looks like a quote unquote real book. Like this is the kind of thing that if you walked into Barnes and Noble, you would see, you know, put on that front table. A lot of them look, you know, kind of crappy. And I didn't want that. I think people do largely still judge books by their covers. And I said to Inkshares at the very beginning of our collaboration, guys, I want, I, I don't even know what this really means. You know, you know it when you see it, but I want this to look like a quote unquote proper book. And so, you know, and again, I was able, I got to pick my own cover artist, Jason Gurley, who's a tremendously uh, talented artist, uh, agreed to do the cover art for us. Um, and Inkshares went all, you know, they did a beautiful hardback edition. Um, you know, I, you know, and again, it's it, a lot of it is like really just little details. You know, we got to pick, you know, the particular kind of paper stock and the typography and all those little things that, again, you don't necessarily understand what it is, but your brain just knows when you see the finished product. Yeah, this is a real book. Right, right. No, it looks like I said, it looks just terrific. Yeah, they did a great job with it. Um, you mentioned that the book that the story takes place in ninth century England. Did you really? I don't know, how much research did you do into that time period? Did you really immerse yourself in, you know, history things to, to write? Yeah, I, I did a fair amount. I didn't feel like I needed to do a ton because the, the, his, the historical part of it is really just the backdrop. The first couple of chapters of the book do have quite a bit of historical detail to kind of set the scene. It's a really fascinating time in history, you know, during the Dark Ages, you know, after basically after the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, Europe just kind of descended into absolute chaos. You know, the, the Roman Empire was essentially what kept um, Europe you know, a, a lawful and, and orderly society. And then when they left, when the empire collapsed, um, you know, Europe basically just descended into absolute, you know, feudal chaos. And so it was a very kind of dark time in, in, um, in English history, uh, particularly for England, because, you know, we were under constant Viking invasion. And, you know, for hundreds of years, we were try desperately trying to prevent the Vikings from taking over the whole country. And Alfred the Great um, essentially um, was charged with defending the last, English kingdom that remained that hadn't been uh, occupied and conquered by the Vikings. So it's a really, really interesting period in history. And uh, I was I, I did a certain amount of research into making sure that kind of just the backdrop and the basic historical details, you know, dates and battles and places and what territory was occupied by the Vikings, that I think is all mostly historically accurate. But then once the story gets going, um, the historical um, uh, foundation of it doesn't really matter so much. It's kind of a more traditional kind of fantasy monster and magic type story after that point. Right. And I know you grew up, you mentioned, I think that you grew up in England. Did that influence this book at all? I mean, are, are you familiar with any of the geography and things in, featured in this book? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we you know we learn all this stuff in 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 school. You know, one of the one of the things about English history classes, you know, we had, there's an awful lot of it. You have to learn it. We have this massively long and quite turbulent history. And I remember learning about you know the Viking invasions and Alfred the Great when I was a kid at school. And you know, again, as an as an English person myself, I'm often drawn back to those themes, you know, I've written, you know, kind of World War II stories that are very specifically set, you know, from the English point of view. Um, uh, I've got, you know, a comic book I'm working on right now, which is an another thing set in England with English characters. Like, you know, the, I'm, I'm always going to have, you know, I think my, where I come from is always going to be a part of 
you know the stuff that I create. And the idea with with Abomination was partly um, you know out born out of that process, but also I liked the idea of um, telling a story again in a real time and place. And there's a lot of fantasy fiction out there these days. It's very very crowded marketplace. I think more so than ever in this kind of post Game of Thrones world that we live in now. And everyone's got their own version of you know Westeros or Middle Earth or Shannara. You know, there's kind of these great fantasy kingdoms. And I felt like it might be more interesting or at least interesting in a different way to tell a story with fantasy elements, with magic and with monsters and all this cool stuff, but, but ground it in a real historical time and place, because then I didn't have to worry about, you know, creating all this fictionalized mythology. Like the history was already there to tell me what the, you know, what the map of the world looked like. Um, and also it helps, I think, to some extent, make the more fantastical elements of the story feel more grounded because you don't feel like you're in a faraway imaginary place. You're in a place that, you know, this is why the first couple of chapters of the book, go you know to great lengths to try and establish this this is a real period in history all of this stuff really happened england really was split down the middle with you know the vikings basically occupying pretty much all of eastern um england and there was very little real english territory left and there were these tremendous battles that were being fought that is you know i think as interesting as anything that's in game of thrones but it's all it all really happened yeah yeah i I don't want to give too much away but this story has a really interesting structure to it i was just wondering is there anything you want to say about the the structure of the story yeah, I mean, in the in the sense that this this actually goes back to the question of like why write it as a book and, and and instead of a movie. A lot of people have said that the story, in some ways, reads a little bit like a screenplay. That it has kind of this cinematic vibe to it, and I'm sure that's because of you know my my background as a as a screenwriter. But part of the reason why I wanted to pursue it as a book instead of as a movie is because the way that I wanted to tell the story. Um, didn't necessarily conform to what at times are the very rigid expectations of what a, what a, how a screenplay how a movie story is structured you know it's a three act story uh everything you know you escalate towards you know a big you know epic conclusion and there are various things along the way that if you deviate from those uh guidelines uh that can be just another reason for someone to say no I don't want to make this movie I don't I don't understand the way the story functions so I I knew that as a novel I would have the ability to tell the story with I think more flexibility and not have to worry about uh a lot of the you know a lot of the kind of the 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 perceived prevailing wisdom of you know how a story is supposed to work so the story does as you mentioned without giving too much away you know it, 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 it there's like a really major turn that it takes i think like a third of the way through where it's almost like that story ends and a whole other story begins and i'm sure there are you know that, that we're going to have this conversation at some point i presume about whether or not um you know abomination can or will be made into a film and at that point we'd probably have to figure out how to restructure the story to put it into more of a typical kind of movie screenplay three X structure template. But part of the fun of writing as a book was not have to worry about that and just tell the story the way that I wanted to tell it. And I think it really pays off because what happens is now people come to stories, especially movie stories um, with such an expectation of, of how the story is going to play out because there are these, there, there are so many specific and very strict rules about, you know, turning points and, you know, first act, second act, third act, and everything has to escalate and it can become quite predictable. Um, that one of the most satisfying things for me is people who have read the book coming back and saying, wow, I, I, I didn't expect that to happen. Or, you know, this event really took me by surprise because I gave myself the freedom to, to take turns and to make decisions in the story that were I writing as a movie, I may not have felt like I would have had the same freedom. Right, right. And then another thing that really struck me in the book is that the one of the protagonists, Wolfric, is a much more noble character than I, I feel like most characters in contemporary fiction are, or even in contemporary movies as well. 
we were talking about this recently on the show in terms of the Chris Pratt character in Jurassic World, that there just seems to be this tendency in modern movies to make the protagonist kind of a dick for no particular reason. And I was just wondering what, what you think about that. And do you feel like too many protagonists are dicks and you wanted to go in a different direction? Yeah, I mean, again, I think that's, you know, especially in Hollywood, we're always, we're always chasing trends, you know, and, and right now, I think for the longest, for, for a while now, we've been dealing with this idea that in order for your, these days, your protagonist has to be edgy, right? Like, he can't just be like a good old-fashioned hero character anymore. There has to be some dark side to him. And again, you know, I think a lot of the time that can work. I mean, your Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy is kind of a dick, right? But that's part of why we love him, right? You think that's what makes him kind of a fun character. Ever, you know, ever since Han Solo, we love the idea of kind of rogues and scoundrels and characters who aren't necessarily, you know, completely um, likable. But, you know, it's, it's, it's often the things that are less likable about them, ironically, that endears us to them all the more. With I don't necessarily think that's the only way to write a character, though. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's really interesting. I literally, it's right before we got on this podcast, I, had, I was watching um, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. I've got it on, you know, on my office TV in the background. And that's a great example of how you can still do a terrific, good old-fashioned, kind of like all-American, um, you know, apple pie hero. I mean, Steve Rogers, right, in, in those movies, doesn't, is not morally ambiguous, right? He knows exactly what he stands for. He is just absolutely kind of true blue good guy. He's surrounded by people, you know, like Tony Stark and these and Nick Fury, these other characters are much more morally ambiguous. And that's interesting in, in their own way. But I think Steve Rogers stands out in that group all the more because he is the one who's kind of like, you know, ramrod straight. I know what I believe in. This is wrong. I'm not going to compromise. And I think that's kind of the genius of what they did with that Captain America character is taking a character like that, who is absolutely morally sure of himself and knows exactly where, you know, right begins and wrong ends and put him in a world where none of that stuff seems to matter anymore. And he, and he's trying to stand up for something, you know, with all, all these other people around him don't seem to give a shit. And I think that's really interesting. And in a, you know, I guess in, in kind of a different way, I like the idea of doing a character um, in Wolfric who was completely um, morally upstanding and knew exactly what he stood for, but would, in a way is like kind of almost a victim of his own moral rectitude that he's so um, he has such high standards for what he considers you know what, what would make a good person that he doesn't even think that he qualifies himself. And he's very, very deeply critical of himself, carries around a tremendous amount of guilt for the, you know, the things that he did during the war. Um, because, you know, he's a, it's interesting. He's a pacifist. It's in many ways a war story and Wolfrig is kind of this great war hero, but he hates himself for all the things that he did in the war because he's a pacifist. I'm very pacifistic, very, very anti-war. I think any time that we can tell anti-war stories or stories that don't glamorize war or make it seem fun or cool or sexy, I think we're, we're doing something worthwhile. And, you know, the battle scenes and the, and the stuff that touches on the Viking wars and abomination is meant to be absolutely horrible. Like you would never want to live in this world. Um, and I think Wolfric is someone who's never asked for that for himself. You know, he's not a warrior by choice. He kind of got conscripted and forced to do this and did the things that he had to do in order to survive and to protect, you know, his king and his kingdom. But now after that, um, I think carries around a tremendous amount of guilt for the things that he's done. And a lot of the, the, the narrative, uh, or emotional, uh, thrust of the narrative is, is really meant to be about him learning to accept the person that he is and, and forgive himself in a way for the things that he's done. Yeah, yeah. And so I mentioned Wolfric is one of the protagonists. And again, I don't want to say too much, but the other main protagonist in the novel is Indra. Uh, is there anything you want to say about her as a character? With with Indra, it was just, I, I always knew that I wanted it to be kind of dual protagonists. And I wanted to, you know, one, I always knew that one was Wolfric, uh, but I wanted to do, I wanted to give him a really good 
um, female character to to kind of bounce off as well. And this is something I've thought about and talked about a lot recently in in writing the book and and doing interviews about it. I think there's been a really um, and there's been a lot of confusion in in the last few years about what constitutes a strong female character. And I think, you know, it's great that we're having these discussions. I think it's terrific that, you know, women are finally kind of getting their due as, you know, in popular culture, right? We have an all-women Ghostbusters movie coming out. I think that I don't care what uh, the, the complainers say. That is fantastic, and it's long overdue. I'm very, very proud of the fact that I worked on a Star Wars movie that has you know, a female protagonist at the heart of that. And Force Awakens has a very strong female character at the heart of that in Daisy Ridley. So this is now, I think we're now starting to finally see, um, I think, a much more, much greater gender equity in terms of who we accept as our movie heroes. It doesn't always have to be, you know, Chuck Norris and Bruce Willis anymore. We, I think there's much more gender neutrality now. And I think that's long overdue. I think part of getting there, though, is working through, um, our conceptions or our misconceptions of what constitutes like a strong female hero or a good female protagonist. I think a lot of people, when they talk about creating strong female characters, often think that that means they often have, often I think have a very simplistic interpretation of it, which is to say, this is someone who's really tough. This is someone who's kick ass. This is someone who basically has a lot of masculine characteristics, you know, someone who can fight her way out of a situation. I don't necessarily think a man who can fight his way out of a situation is particularly strong, you know, just because they're, they're good with their fists or with a gun or something. I don't think that necessarily makes them a strong character. So I don't know why necessarily just giving, assigning those traits to a woman, other than the fact that we don't necessarily automatically assign those traits to female characters as much, automatically makes her a strong or an interesting character in the same way. And so, with, so Indra was kind of my way of like trying to figure out like what I thought we meant when we talked about a strong female character. And, you know, in many of the conventional ways that I just talked about, she does have those qualities. She is good with a sword. She does stand up for herself. She is kind of strong in those kind of typical masculine ways. But I thought what was much more interesting about her and what, and what makes her a much stronger character is I really tried to lay to kind of load her down with as many emotional flaws and problems and setbacks as possible. You know, she had a terrible childhood. She hates her dad. She was terribly mistreated by her dad. She suffers from debilitating panic attacks. She lies. She's arrogant. Uh, she's carrying around all this unresolved anger that that often leads her to get into trouble act, and act out in ways that, you know, are contrary to her goal. So she's got all these emotional and psychological problems, I think, make it very difficult for her to succeed. And so I think what makes a character strong like that, whether it be male, male or female, is rather than start them, you know, on the goal line where, you know, they're basically an okay character and off they go on their mission, start them 20 yards back, weigh them down with as much emotional baggage and as, and as many problems as you possibly can, and then ask them to overcome those flaws and succeed in spite of all of them. Because I think if you can do that, that's much more of a struggle, you know, in abomination, you know, she has to fight monsters and bad guys and all this kind of stuff externally that she has to overcome. But I think what's much more interesting is the internal struggle and her inner demons and these voices inside her head that tell her that she's going to fail and she's not good enough and all the things that, you know, that kind of plague us, you know, in our daily lives, you know, our, our inner critic, you know, that, that voice that's telling us that we're all imposters who aren't worthy. I think laying, I, I, what I found ultimately that was most interesting was the more, problems i gave her and the more things that i kind of burdened her with uh, and the more setbacks i gave her the stronger she became because she had to become stronger in order to get where i needed her to go which is you know hopefully a happy a happy resolution for her by the end of the story yeah yeah 
Uh, so unfortunately, we're running really short on time here. I, I wanted to note one thing, though, is that the this book has one of the most eclectic collections of blurbs I've ever seen. You've got uh, video game designers, film producers, podcasters, uh, <laughs> uh, novelists. I mean, uh, some of these people are uh, Cliff Blazinski and Gail Ann Hurd, Nicole Perlman. It's just, I think it really uh, speaks to how wide-ranging your creative work has been. But are these all people you know? How did you end up with all these crazy Yeah, to some extent. I don't have a copy of the, the book in front of me right now for all of them. But yeah, you're right. it is kind of an eclectic mix. Typically, when you see blurbs on the back of a book, you know, from a writer who's, you know, a lot of people these days, you know, they're writers that have written other books, you tend to get blurbs from other writers um, and, you know, from the literary press. I, though I have a background in screenwriting and a profile as a writer – uh, in film, that do, none of that really parlays into you know my work as an author. I don't really, I do now because I've been through this experience. But when I first started writing it, I didn't know any authors. Uh, I didn't really know anyone who would be appropriate to put on the book, uh, you know, as a blurb. So I just kind of reached out. I, I sent you know free copies of the book to the people that I did know, um, and you know those are people from the world of video games, people from the world of film, you know, fellow screenwriters film producers and you know in in the end some of the authors that I came to um know during this process people like Chuck Wendig and uh, and Hugh Howie who were kind enough to and Adam Christopher people who are you know authors of of note who were happy and you know read the book and were com- you know liked it enough that they're comfortable uh, giving a blurb but you're right it's it, it's it's an eclectic mix and it does kind of i guess in a way reflect kind of the weird um you know uh routes that I took towards you know getting to write this book yeah I mean, have any of the responses really struck you, been really interesting or noteworthy that you've gotten to the book? Um, yeah, just, I, I think, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a couple of um, things that, you know, that the book seems to have done successfully that what, that what I would hoped it would do. Anytime that you write something, whether it be the overall work or maybe a specific moment or a line in a scene or something, you know, there are times when you go like, this is going to kill. Like, I really, really think, or I really hope that the audience is going to respond to this. Like, here's a twist in the, in the story that I put, or just a little character moment or a gag. And you just, you know, you have a feel good feeling about it. And you just hope that that, that it's going to go over the way that you expect it to, or the way you hope it will. With Abomination, there were just two things that I kind of hoped it would do. One was really gross people out because I wanted <laughs> to just on, just on a popcorn level. It, part of it was an exercise in, can I create monsters and monster scenes that are so gut-wrenchingly just sickening and disgusting and awful. I was really, really um, uh, influenced by John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, if you've read the book, obviously you, you'll, you'll, you'll probably see some of that influence. I just wanted to create just these awful, just absolutely unholy, abominable, unspeakable things that just have no business existing in the real world and try to paint that picture, you know, with, with words as, as effectively as possible that people would just be, like, really grossed out. And... I, I think that's worked. I, I, I've got a lot of comments from people going, oh my God, this is disgusting. Like, what, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> that, that's exactly the kind of stuff that you want to hear. And then just on a larger scale, you know, just hoping that the, 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 for all its kind of popcorn sensibilities, like it is gross, it's supposed to be violent, it's supposed to be scary, it's supposed to be ugly in places, uh, it's supposed to be very visceral. But there is kind of, ultimately beneath it is meant to be hopefully kind of a sweet, an emotionally kind of redemptive story that along the way takes a couple of unexpected turns. And again, for, for the most part, people seem to have responded to that. They've identified that even though it's really gross on the surface, it's actually kind of sweet underneath and emotionally um, resonant. And um, 
in a couple of specific places, the story does turn in a way that people don't expect. I've got so many, it's funny, it's almost become like a meme now. I've had so many people um, come to me saying, oh my God, I just read chapter eight. And they're just like speechless or, you know, you motherfucker <laughs> or whatever. They just, just like really unhappy about chapter eight, but in a good way. Because chat something really, uh, really surprising and quite um, uh, uh, bad happens in chapter eight that you don't see coming, I think, for the most part. And when people get there, it really kind of throws them uh, because it's just not something they're expecting to happen. Again, because I think I was able to structure the story in a way that um, that was, that was cons- I guess, to some extent, non-conformist and non non-traditional and so unexpected i i agree with that yeah the book definitely took me by surprise uh, more than once for sure good i'm glad <laughs> and i think uh, we'll probably have to wrap things up there um so just to finally uh, gary do you just want to have any other projects you want to mention anything else you just want to let people know about um yeah let me see uh i'm doing uh, gee i almost wish you were talking to me like a week later because there's a couple <laughs> of things i'm really excited about that, that are not announced yet but will be very soon but i'm doing uh right now i'm finishing up um a, a movie for fox called starlight which is an adaptation of um the mark miller comic book you know mark did kingsman secret service and kick-ass and wanted and a bunch of cool comic books that got turned into movies and this is the next one uh that we're hoping um will go into production next year uh, I've got two other movie and TV projects, which I can't announce yet. And I'm doing uh, a comic book uh, called Oliver, which is a um, post-apocalyptic retelling of the Oliver Twist story, which uh, is going to be published next year. So um, talk to me again in a couple of weeks, and I'll tell you stuff that's, that's cool that I can't talk about yet. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right. So we've been speaking with Gary Witta, and this new book is called Abomination. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Gary Witta for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Bulgad Munson in Norway, and Magic Cooper, No Broccoli in the Burrito, and Sean Mack the Don in the U.S. No Broccoli in the Burrito writes, This podcast is great. Depth, detail, and excellent topics. Thank you for creating this. I have to imagine that someone should be able to monetize this podcast properly, given that nearly every podcast drives me to see the movies and purchase the books that are showcased. Okay, fine, I go to the library too. Thanks for a great show. So, big thanks again to No Broccoli in the Burrito for that great review. Special thanks as well to Ben Symes, Samuel Corpy, and Francisco Marrera, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. I'd also like to give a special thank you to longtime listener Estelle Tidy, who just increased her Patreon pledge to $2 per episode. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to thank Victor Thorin in Norway, who just became PayPal patron number 119. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.